Well, how many of you have a difficult time not saying something? Anyone? Difficult? Okay, we have some people who are willing to admit that. If you have ever been to my house or you've met my children, you'll know that the majority of those that live within our home have a hard time not saying something. They struggle intensely with this. And maybe it's just a kid's thing. Maybe it's something they've inherited from their grandfathers. But all I know is that my kids have a very difficult time not saying something when that said something comes into their mind. They like to talk, and very little will stop them from talking. They like to share their opinions. I mean, it could be anything. Quantum physics. They'll come up with something to talk about. They have to say something. And some of you are like that. Some of you are willing to admit that. And some of you know your children are like that. Now, that's one type of struggle. The other type, though, is that struggle to not say something when you smash your finger with that hammer or in the drawer. Uh, You've all had that moment before, right? You try not to scream something. Uh, Maybe for you it was stepping on that shards of Legos last night in the middle of the night that your kids left all over the floor. Not saying something, not yelling. Maybe it's when somebody cuts you off on the highway. It's hard to keep what's going on in our hearts and in our minds from coming out of our mouth. Well, here in Psalm 39, as we just read, we find David in one of those very moments in life when it's really, really hard to not say something. It's so difficult that he's not just biting his lower lip or gnawing on his fist here. No, he has, as it says in verse 2, he's about to grab a muzzle. Now, parents don't get any ideas here about that. The situation David finds himself in, which we aren't specifically informed of here uh, in this psalm, is one that has brought him to a point of needing to keep his tongue to hold his peace. Most commentators note that this psalm is connected to both the two psalms that come before it, Psalm 38 and 37, as well as the one that comes after it, which will be our text next week in Psalm 40. Just a cursory reading of those psalms, we can see the connections that take place between them. In Psalm 37, David is perplexed with the apparent prosperity of the wicked while the righteous are being afflicted. As we saw last week in Psalm 38, David acknowledges both his guilt because of his sin as well as the wrongdoing of his enemies toward him. Now, here in Psalm 39, we hear a new vantage point from David as he bemoans not only the difficulties of life, but also the apparent vanity of life here on earth. What ever the circumstances might be for David, whether it's the effects of his own sin or the attacks of the wicked, the truth is, David's struggling. Life is not going well for David. And it's here, if I'm honest with you, I'm kind of glad we don't know the specifics of David's situation. For, I don't know if you're like me, but when I know the specifics of a situation, I can often easily excuse myself because my situation is so different. So whatever David says here is really not all that relevant to me because if David was in my shoes, for sure he would respond differently. I mean, whether that be good or bad. 
You see, friend, the reality is we don't need to know exactly what David is going through right here in this psalm because the truth is as humans, we are just like David. Our hearts are prone to wander. The emotions that life conjures up in our deceitful hearts are just as raw as what we hear from the lips of David here, which is why the psalms are are so helpful for us. The Psalms are, as Sam Storms explains, a never-ending reminder that God welcomes our deepest desires. He welcomes our most unnerving fears, our anxiety, our adoration, our celebration, and even our confusion. Psalm 39 is a case in point. So when we read a psalm like this, we, we realize we aren't alone in our distress. We aren't alone in our difficulties. The Psalms seem to just get us, don't they? Matter of fact, Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, wrote this of the Psalms. He said, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book, you can select a form of words to fit it. And then he continued on to say, so that you learn the way to remedy your ill." So you can find words to fit your situation, but you also learn a way to remedy your ill. You see, while the Psalms seem to get us, they don't just leave us there in our angst or our disappointment. Rather, they give us words to cry out to God, and as we declare our desperate dependence, our frustration and our fears, our faith is built. One author said that the Psalms are a school for our souls. Another said the Psalms are a gymnasium in which we go for daily workouts, keeping ourselves in shape for a life of spirituality. And see, it's to that end, to that end of being built up in our faith that I believe God wants to use this Psalm in our lives this morning and then throughout this week as well. I believe he wants to show us how the distress and the brevity of life leads us to our only source of hope in life, to himself, to God, even in the midst of his discipline. So that's the big idea that we get from Psalm 39. The distress and brevity of life leads us to our only source of hope in life, to God, even in the midst of his discipline. For as we already sang this morning, he is our hope in life and death. Because the truth of the matter is, life doesn't always go as planned. It doesn't always go as hoped for. And we look around our world today, and we see the wicked prospering. We wonder why. Why is that the case? And how come? We then look into the mirror and we see the face of one who's being disciplined, rightfully so, for we know our own unrighteousness, but yet this rebuke seems to be so unfair and even meaningless. So the question arises, when life is less than hoped for, when it doesn't go as planned, where is our hope? When life doesn't go as you planned, where is your hope? Well, let's walk alongside David this morning here in Psalm 39 as he wrestles with this question in the midst of his distress, in the midst of his doubts. 
In the first three verses of this psalm, we find David reflecting on the distress of life. Let's read these verses again. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, a fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. The circumstances of David's life have brought him to this point of frustration and angst. It's so bad that he's doing all he can to just keep his mouth shut, to not say something at all. And as I said earlier, we don't know the specific details David finds himself in, but we've all shared these types of moments in life. Maybe it was something that was done at work. Maybe it's something that was done at home, the neighbor blowing all those grass clippings again on your yard. We know what it's like to get frustrated when someone does something to us. And that might be the core of David's frustration here, but as we continue, I, I think what we'll come to find is that it's not so much what others have done, but just the way things are in life. Now notice at the end of verse 1, the wicked are present, however, they don't really seem to be the target of David's angst here. Oh, they certainly play a role, but they're not central. And we see this more clearly in the upcoming verses. However, before we even get there, we can come to this conclusion because we know the propensity of the human heart already. From the very first pages of Scripture, in Genesis 3, we learn that mankind has been on this quest to become like God, knowing good and evil. And in doing so, we as humans have rebelled against his good, right, and perfect ways that would lead us to abundance, that would lead us to a life that is flourishing. But instead, we think life is best ruled by us. And yet, as that garden scene in Genesis 3 reveals, when we try to rule our own life, the end is destruction. Like Adam and Eve, we will certainly place the blame on others for messing up our life. But the truth is, when we do what is right in our own eyes, it's only evil continually. Now, this is where I believe David is here when he pens these words. This is where he's at. David knows he's messed up. He said it back in chapter or Psalm 38. Trevor doesn't like it when we say chapter 38. Psalm 38. Verses 3 and 4, there is no soundness, David said, in my flesh. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For I, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. You see, David is fully aware of his sinfulness here. But he also knows he's the object of other scorn. Again, he said this, in 38, those who seek my life lay in snare. Those who seek my heart speak of ruin. Even worse than these, he feels forsaken by God. And so Psalm 38 ends, do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Well, we can come to the conclusion for David, life is at its worst. And so as we come into Psalm 39, he is silent. This is that silence of distress. You've been there, right? You know what that's like. It's the, the silence of misery, of, 
outrage and frustration. What is going on? We know this to be so because he is trying to hold his peace in this moment. His heart becomes so hot within him, he begins to muse, and it's almost as that if that steam from the fire burning within him starts billowing out his ears. This is not a picture of David sitting in the corner of the palace, peacefully playing his harp. No, David's emotions are, are raw here. He just can't keep quiet any longer. He is so frustrated with what is going on, and so what happens? Notice the first two words of verse 4. O oh, Lord, in the midst of the distress of life, when life is at its worst, he turns to God. How about you? When life is at its worst, when you feel the distress of life, where do you turn? In spite of the muzzled mouth, the hot heart, David turns to the Lord. And yet, notice what he says here in verse 4. Let's read these verses again. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Well, having just mused over the distress of life, David turns to the Lord here, but it isn't filled with words of faith or trust at this point. Rather, we hear more frustration from David. Frustration at the brevity of life. This moment of utter exasperation, what David cries out to God is somewhat surprising, isn't it? I mean, we're used to hearing his quick turn to, my hope is in you. I have faith in you, God. But in this moment, this is all he's got. In this moment, all he can say is, Look at life. It seems pointless, meaningless, so short. Again, this is why the Psalms are so helpful for us. They help us know it's okay to not always be okay. They help us to know it's okay to just pray what we got. Whatever it is in that moment of despair or resentment, God welcomes it. Here, David, in essence, is crying out, what am I supposed to make of all of this, God? And see, life is not only at its worst for David, it also seems meaningless. What is the measure of my days? How fleeting I am. You have made my days a few hand breaths. Is it as nothing before you? Surely all mankind is as mere breath. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, you, you have probably noticed that these words sound a lot like another book that we have, really close here to the book of Psalms. It's that of Ecclesiastes. And actually, David's son wrote most of Ecclesiastes. There, David's son uses this same word that we find here in verse 5, 6, and 11. It's the Hebrew word havel. 
Translated for us here in Psalm 39 is breath or shadow. In Ecclesiastes, it's used some 38 times, beginning right in the very chapter 1, where it says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is just breath, shadow, havel. In other words, what David is praying back to God about his life is that it seems to be in vain, useless, a mere puff of air, shadows in a campfire. Oh, all the piles of stuff, the well-stocked 401ks, those gadgets and the gizmos, the outfits and the accessories are here today, but then just gone tomorrow. The extra hours spent at work and toil, all for what? Oh, surely for nothing. Oh, David is in a rough spot here, isn't he? One author writes, conceivably, he had trouble understanding the benefit of the wicked soon being gone if he will soon be dead himself. What's more, if everyone's life is short, then would it not be better to have a short-lived life of prosperity like the wicked rather than have no prosperity at all and live a life of misery? Let's just be honest. This is the struggle we often face in life, isn't it? We wonder at times, what's the point? It's not going as planned. It's not what I hoped for. What's, what's the point? My life, a mere shadow. Here today, gone tomorrow. Days are fleeting. But once again, notice who David is now speaking to. Oh, he had kept his silence for some time, but when he can hold it in no longer, who did he turn to? Let me ask you once again, where do you turn? Where do you turn when life seems meaningless? Where do you turn when you are at your wit's end, when you are overwhelmed? In spite of the muzzled mouth, the hot heart, and now the questions still unanswered, David turns to his master. Verse 7, David's dark thoughts and perplexing questions seem to come to an abrupt halt as he cries out, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Again, we can hear some frustration, but yet a frustration that's turning in faith. He turns to his master in faith. He turns to God with a question that he already knows the answer to. For in this very next line, David himself answers his own question. Now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Oh, my hope. My hope is in you. David here is preaching the gospel, the good news about who God is to himself with the distress of life still aching in his heart, the brevity of life with all its unanswered questions still ringing in his ears, David feebly turns to the only hope of life. My hope is is you. It's a declaration of faith that expectantly hopes in God with an enduring patience, 
There's no one else he can turn to. No one else he would rather turn to. And this declaration is at the very center of this psalm and the heart of its meaning. David prays what he's got. He's laid out his frustrations, his anger, his confusions about life. He's entered the gymnasium of prayer to work out the anguish of life. And now notice the change, the transformation that begins to take place in the tone of David's voice. There's a change from that self-focused, woe is me, to the self-surrendered, deliver me as he pleads for reconciliation and restoration. Look at verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions to not make me the scorn of the fool. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. There's this change from a self-focused woe is me to self-surrender. There's also this change of that silence of anger and frustration to now a a silence of trust. Look at verse 9. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. Why? For it is you, you who have done it. David acknowledges that all that has come to him has come from the hand of his master. You see, this is the the grace of, of God's discipline on him. Oh, it's painful in the present. But as Trevor read already this morning from Hebrews 12, 11, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Oh, David is still in the midst of the unpleasant. But in faith, his eyes have been turned to his only hope in life and death. And notice the fruit it is already beginning to bear in the change of his perspective on life. Look at verse 11. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume him like a moth, what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. We've heard that before already, haven't we? Up there in verse 5, it ends the same exact way, and yet now it comes from a softer heart and voice from one who is being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to wait for that blessed hope. If in verse 5 there was an edge in his voice of despair and discontentment, now in verse 11 there's this sense of a calm and humble desperation and dependence. He knows this has come from God. It is you who have done it. You've disciplined me. You've rebuked me. And surely... I am as nothing. He still knows that his time here on earth is short, but he also remembers that this world is not his home. He's just passing through. He's a sojourner, a guest like all his fathers. Verse 12. He's a stranger in exile here on earth, and his desire is for a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, as the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 11, God is not ashamed to be called his God, for he has prepared for him a city. You see, David is looking forward to something better. David's eyes of faith are set on the one who is his hope in life. What he knows about that person outweighs what he does not know about his problems. 
What he knows about God outweighs what he does not know about what is happening in life. How about you? Where is your hope? Where do you run when life seems meaningless? Oh, the psalmist shows us we can go to God with whatever we've got. In those moments of distress, when life seems meaningless, we can go to God and in that moment he starts to build our faith. For what we have is a gospel assurance that in Christ, He took upon himself our problems, our pain. He took upon himself our distress. And so, friend, the good news here for us this morning is that if you have never placed your faith in Christ alone, repenting of your sin and your self-righteousness, the call to respond to God in faith, to cry out, my hope is in you, is firmly established with this assurance that Christ is our hope in life and death. You don't have to wonder. You can know with an assurance that Christ is your hope. And so I encourage you, friend, to turn to him this morning. For those of you who have already turned in faith and repentance to Christ, let me call you to respond this morning to this psalm as well by turning to God and proclaiming with the psalmist in the midst of your distress and despair, oh God, my hope is in in you. You see, it's far better to run to God questioning your meaning in life than to simply put God or put on a good face in front of everyone. Be far from him. And so like the psalmist, don't be ashamed to to pray what you've got in that moment. Don't be afraid to use these words, to say words, pray words like this, because God welcomes them. His shoulders are big enough to handle our stress and our disappointments. Go to God and then watch him build your faith. One commentator noted the very presence of such prayers and scriptures such as this is a witness that God understands. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. Are you desperate? Where do you go for your hope? Born in 1731, William Cooper's mother died when he was only six years old, leaving him to be raised by his father. His life would be marked by periods of intense depression, leading him even to attempt suicide on several occasions. While in residence at one asylum, after one attempt to take his own life, Cooper happened upon a Bible on a bench in the garden. God used John 11 and Romans 3.25 to open his eyes to the goodness of Jesus and the sufficiency of his atoning work. Throughout the rest of his life, he remained convinced of God's sovereignty and his goodness, even though at times he had great difficulty believing he himself was a beneficiary of them. 
1767, Cooper moved to Olney, England, and soon became friends with one named John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. Cooper began hymn writing as a result of this friendship, and in 1774, he wrote what is thought to be his very last hymn, containing these profound words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And then he encourages us In the midst of our distress, in the midst of our questions, not fully answered, he writes these words, Ye fearful saints, oh, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You see, in the distress, the brevity of life, it leads us to our only source of hope in life. My hope is in you. Is that your cry of faith this morning, friend? Where do you turn for your hope? Father, I pray that it would be said of each and every one of us here this morning that when we are in those moments that don't make sense, that we would turn to you. God, I have to believe that there is someone sitting here this morning that is in the midst of one of those very times. Not sure exactly what has happened in the last week, last month. Maybe what's happened even in the last day or so. Maybe it's the text that they've received. Maybe it's the phone call. Maybe it's the email that came on Friday about a job. I I don't know what it is, but you do. And you welcome them right now in the midst of the distress, in the midst of the questions, you welcome them. You say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. God, I pray that individual would come bowing before you and say, my hope is in you. Well, I still have a struggle. I still want to say things, but I'm going to be quiet in humble submission to you, God. I don't know what's going on, but I rest. I rest in you. God, I also have to believe that there's someone here this morning that does not know you as that kind of good and loving father. Well, they have been seeking answers in all the various ways throughout this life, finding it in a change of who they are so that it would fit in 
with a different crowd, seeking acceptance in some way, finding their identity in their job or in other areas of life. God, I pray that this morning, from your word that you have spoken to their hearts and that you would do that miracle of regeneration right now through the preaching of your word and that you would change their heart from dead to alive and that they would come, that you would draw them to yourself in faith and that they would come to you this morning declaring my hope is in you. That we, as brothers and sisters in Christ now, would be able to celebrate that with them. God, I pray that your word would not fall on deaf ears, that we who have now heard your word would do it, that we would go today and throughout this week and we would cast ourselves on you. Whatever comes our way, would you help us to cry out that our hope is in you? Change our hearts. Change our self-focused ways. And surrender us to you.